This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. This is episode 8 of Ohio vs. the World, and today we're looking at Ohio versus Flight. We are going to find out how Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers, became the first people to ever fly a plane. Something's always bothered me with the state of North Carolina, the Tar Heel State. On their license plates, they claim that they are the first in flight. On our license plates, you might see something, especially back in the day, you'd see birthplace of aviation, Ohio. Today, we want to settle that debate once and for all. Ohio is the birthplace of aviation and the first in flight. North Carolina has almost no claim to this. The plane was built in North Carolina or in Ohio. The brothers were from Ohio. Everything about the plane is from Ohio. It was only flown in North Carolina because of the winds and the dunes were easier for, for them to get off the ground. I'd like to put an end to this once and for all. There's things like the First Flight Society in North Carolina. Their state quarter says first in flight. Um, that is ours. That is Ohio's. North Carolina, you have stolen it. And today we're going to take it back. Today we're talking about the Wright brothers. And we are going to look at, first of all, how they did it, their struggle to get there, their childhood, uh, what it was like in Dayton at the turn of the century. We're going to look at what I think the even more important story is what happens after they achieve that first flight on December 17th, 1903. That famous picture you see uh, of the flyer off the ground over the dunes in, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. That was on December 17th, 1903. Orville Wright was the, uh, was the flyer at that point. But I think what happens after flight and how they master flight and become the real pioneers of the air is such an incredible story. Um, today we're sitting down with my friend, University of Dayton alum, and Wright Brothers know-it-all, Mike Albritton. Uh, Mike was kind enough to join us last week, um, and he's also kind enough to bring us our beer of the episode. He brought from Dayton, of course. We drank a Warped Wing, a t- their 10-ton, uh, it's a 10-ton oatmeal stout. Um, their WarpedWing.com, it's a brewery in just outside of downtown, it's in downtown Dayton, really. It's on uh, 
Wyandotte Street in between 3rd and 4th Street, um, really close to the Dayton Beer Company. Um, but a great place, a great brewery. They make some really good beers. We had their 10-ton uh, oatmeal stout. It's a dark beer. It's not as heavy as some of the stouts I've had, but I don't love stouts. I'm not a big fan of Guinness, to be honest. Um, but the 10-ton, it's got almost like a chocolatey, like some, I don't know, almost caramel taste to it. 7% alcohol. Again, warpedwing.com. They do tours at the brewery on Sundays, uh, on Sunday afternoons. Um, so look them up. Uh, check out their oatmeal stout. Really good stuff. They've got a couple other really good beers. Um, but they're our beer for the episode. Also, don't forget, we are the charity uh, beneficiary of the Broke Man's uh, Beer Mile, which is going to be Monday, Memorial Day, May 29th. That's at 8, 8.30 in the morning, 9 in the morning. Uh, it's out on the east side of Columbus on 1600 Alum Creek Road. Um, sign up for that. Land Grant Brewing Company is going to be doing all the beers there. Um, I was actually at Land Grant last night watching the Cavaliers win another playoff game. Um, so check out Land Grant here in Columbus, another awesome brewery, great guys. Um, and they will be running, uh, or they will be all the beer. They'll be providing all the beer for the Broke Man's Beer Mile, brokemans.com. Um, they do marathons and half marathons and things like this all over the state. Our friends Katie and Abe, um, we're happy to be joining them. They're going to write us a nice check for our scholarship program, the nonprofit associated with the podcast. Um, and we're really looking forward to that on Memorial Day, May 29th. Sign up for it. There's still spots available. So go check that out. We take flight for granted nowadays. But in 2016, 105 million people flew in and out of Hartsfield Airport uh, in Atlanta. Uh, myself, I account for probably four or five of those passengers. Um, but we take it for granted these days. What these guys did changed everything in the 20th century. And there is no debate. They are the first, you know, our research, everything we've done. No one else flew a heavier-than-airplane before they did in 1903. Uh, you can go to the Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian, um, and you can see, we'll post a picture uh, from my trip last uh, in November, myself and Miss Ohio vs. the World, uh, did all the Smithsonian Museums last fall in D.C. It's an awesome weekend. And we'll post some pictures on the Instagram, Ohio v. the World podcast. Um, and we'll post some pictures of the very first Wright Flyer. But the fact that they did this, two Ohio men, two bike shop owners from Dayton, Ohio, they did it without any government backing, without a rich benefactor, it's just their determination and work ethic. They just would not quit until they accomplished their goal. Um, today, we're going to look at their journey into the air um, and really the incredible story of what happens after they achieve that first flight. So seatbacks and tray tables in their upright and locked position. It's episode eight. We're going to learn how the Wright brothers learned to fly. It's Ohio versus flight. couple weeks ago, at the end of April, I was on the front page of the dispatch. I was wearing my Blue Jack, Columbus Blue Jackets jersey. It's playoff hockey time. 
The Blue Jackets, I'm a season ticket holder. I'm down on the glass. The team is much improved. Um, they had a great year, even though they got knocked out in the first round by Pittsburgh. But there's just hockey craziness here in Columbus, Ohio, and Central Ohio. Um, and I can't wait for next season to start. But I was on the front page of the dispatch at Game 1 in Pittsburgh. Um, I was doing my normal thumbs-down thing. Uh, they just happened to, to catch me up in the stands. The Jackets lost Game 1, 3-1. to one. Um, And I came back, I was at court, and I was talking to my friend Mike Albritton. And he said, well, you know, hockey... It's, you know, we were talking about doing this, this Wright Brothers episode. He goes, you know, hockey started flight. If it weren't for hockey, the Wright Brothers would never have been the first in flight. And so he told me a story. Um, and it's a crazy story. Uh, but he told me about how hockey was the catalyst for human flight. You know, you're a big hockey fan. I'm a, obviously, we're both big Blue Jackets fans. Um, and, you know, last week, obviously, the Jackets were knocked out. But Ohio is becoming a hockey state. Obviously, we live in a hockey town. It's playoff time. Um, you were telling me when we talked, we had lunch a couple weeks ago, you were telling me about how hockey kind of helped spark flight, how it helped spark the Wright <laughs> brothers. So tell me, tell the audience, how did hockey uh, you know, help to cause human flight? Well, I think inadvertently it did. Uh, hockey was a catalyst in setting the chain of events that... Uh, basically led Wilbur and Orville to working together to develop their first heavier-than-air uh, flying machine. And it was just through uh, a hockey game. Uh, in the winter of 1885-86, you have 19-year-old Wilbur, and he's playing hockey with his neighborhood friends, and the uh, town bully, Oliver Hoff, was playing hockey with them, and they're against each other. And at some point, uh, Hoff's stick knocked out Wilbur's teeth. And uh, it was actually a pretty serious injury. You have to remember back then, they didn't have the kind of dental care that we have today. So it caused a lot of complications in terms of stomach problems and heart palpitations. Uh, So he suffered pretty serious injuries. And as a consequence of that, he did not end up going to Yale University, which is where he was scheduled to go to. And he planned on going there. And that uh, that basically changed everything. Yeah, I mean, how does how does it change? You know, this is uh, oh, this is Wilbur we're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how does that change Wilbur? Because he's planning on going to Yale, and he has this accident. I mean, what what did that do to him as far as his future? At this point, Wilbur becomes reclusive. He has this. He suffered this uh, serious injury, and he's um, has a lot of these complicated medical issues. So instead of going to college, um, he spent his time basically becoming reclusive. He spent his time reading and giving himself a liberal arts education. You have to remember, not, neither one of the Wright brothers had any form of college education. Everything was, was self-taught as far as a liberal arts education. Wilbur studied uh, ornithology, among other subjects. Uh, he took care of his sick mother, uh, who was dying of t- tuberculosis. And I feel I, like everybody had tuberculosis like, back then. Well, it uh, certainly they had a lot of uh, issues with uh, typhoid fever and things like that with the drinking water. Um, they did not have any uh, plumbing. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, it took uh, time for Wilbur to do a lot of self-reflection. And ultimately, instead of going to Yale, he ended up taking a job with his brother. And so the Wright brothers ended up uh, going into business together. Uh, therefore... 
you have um, them staying together. And without either one of them, I, the events would not have transpired the way they did. Yeah, I mean, he becomes kind of more yes. bookish, almost. I mean, exactly. He, he really starts staying home and studying and focusing on uh, basically just getting mm-hmm. smarter. I don't know how else to put it. Um, the kid who hit him, has, you know, McCullough lays out this really interesting story. Uh, the, the town bully, you said, uh, he becomes someone kind of rather famous, doesn't he? Actually, yes. Uh, according to what we know, Oliver Hoff became one of the most notorious serial, notorious serial killers in Ohio. Uh, he killed his parents, and we think the body count is somewhere around 12 people. Yeah, he said a dozen to maybe 15. I think he killed his brother, too. Yeah. Um, What's interesting about uh, this guy uh, was I was in preparation for this podcast. I was looking at uh, the newspaper article... Uh, showing his execution, which took place at midnight or a couple minutes after midnight on April 19, 2007. And of course, when I read where he was executed at, it was at the old Ohio Penitentiary, which coincidentally is where the Columbus Blue Jackets play right now. That's yeah, right next to the arena. So he came full, <laughs> Oliver came full circle there. I'm always fascinated. I mean, obviously, I love Ohio history, but this period of Ohio history, this kind of gilded age up until, you know, World War I, um, it was an incredible time to be in the Buckeye State. Numbers of presidents. You got Hayes, Garfield, McKinley, Taft, Harding. I mean, five presidents in about, you know, 40 years, 40, 44 years. Um, Thomas Edison. Just so much innovation going on in Ohio. Um, so many great stories that we're going to be mining over these next few seasons of Ohio versus the World. But the Wright brothers come out of this time. The Wright brothers, they're born, they live in Dayton. Um, they start a print shop there. Uh, Wilbur starts a print shop. And they start a bicycle shop. They work with motors in Dayton. You know, at this time, was, it was really a, a burgeoning city, but certainly an industrial city. A city full of foundries and factories. Um, but really, what is it about Ohio at this, you know, at this point in time? That created just so much innovation. Wilbur once said, If I were giving a young man advice as to how to succeed in life, I would say to him, pick out a good father and mother and begin life in Ohio. We're going to listen to a, a quote from David McCullough, the famous author, American history author. Um, he's just one of my favorite authors. He wrote 1776 and John Adams. Uh, Truman, and he also wrote an incredible book called The Wright Brothers. Here's what McCullough thought about, you know, he asked the same question, what is it about Ohio? Well, there's something particularly American about the Ohio story. And it's, um, when you look at who came from Ohio and what they did, it's uh, quite remarkable. Presidents, inventors, and there's a, a strange coincidence, and maybe it isn't a coincidence, that the first human being ever to fly in a, in a flying machine, Orville Wright, and the first human being ever to set foot on the moon came from the same section of southwestern Ohio, Neil Armstrong. And, and then, of course, John Glenn also came from Ohio, as did Edison, as did numerous other people in that very protein time. And we asked Mike Albritt and our guests kind of the same question. 
what is it about the Wright brothers in Ohio in this time that just kind of, it all just kind of came together to make human flight possible? What is it about Ohio during this time? I mean, we, we look at a number of different episodes. We're going to look at this period, you know, this kind of late 19th century, early 20th century in Ohio. We have, you know, five or six presidents come from Ohio, Thomas Edison, the Wright brothers. I mean, Wilbur says, you know, if he was giving advice to somebody on how to, how to be a success, he says, pick out a good father and mother and start life in Ohio. Uh, what is it about Ohio around the turn of the century that, that helps breed kind of the ingenuity in the Wright brothers? Well, I love that quote by Wilbur. Um, one of the things, though, I think you cannot put enough emphasis on the kind of quality home life that they had. Everywhere uh, you turned in the Wright brothers' house, there are books. There are books everywhere. Bishop Wright uh, fostered that kind of uh, environment where you encourage education, where you encourage learning. Uh, so I, I love that quote. And uh, the family would make regular trips to the Dayton Public Library. So a library card was just as important as anything. Uh, and uh, the story of the Wright brothers, it's, it's the story of Ohio, and it's really the American story. It really is. What is significant about Dayton uh, is that at the time, it was a city on the rise with creativity. It ranked first in the country relative to population and the creation of new patents. It was a center of invention. You had heavy machinery being built everywhere. Of course, you had National Cash Register. But everywhere you turned, there was productivity. And I, I think that's just demonstrative of the kind of uh, American story that you had at that time. So if you put that kind of uh, atmosphere that uh, fosters that kind of ingenuity and invention and, and uh, small businesses, uh, that, I think that's what led to uh, that kind of uh, idea making. The Dayton, Ohio of the Wilbur and Orville Wright's childhood in the 1880s and 1890s was a city of about 40,000 people. It's growing quickly, heavy with industry, uh, and it was built along a curve along the Great Miami River. In 1805, it was founded uh, and named after Jonathan Dayton. He was a captain of the U.S. Army uh, during the Revolutionary War. He was one of the original signers of the Constitution. Um, and like I said, it was about the fourth largest city in Ohio. Today, the metro area is about 800,000 people. It's the fifth largest city in Ohio. It's about the 43rd largest metro area in the country. The biggest factory, the biggest uh, employer in the area was National Cash Registry. All the cash registers across the country came from Dayton. The parts, everything to do with cash registers, um, that came from Dayton, National Cash Register. The Wright brothers owned a bike shop uh, just, you know, just west of downtown Dayton called the Wright Cycle Shop. Bicycles, towards the end of the 19th century, became a huge deal. Everyone was buying bicycles. There was just a giant craze, a national craze for bicycles. And the Wrights ran a very successful shop. They learned how to fix bicycles, uh, build bicycles, um, and they were one of the most popular stores in town. We asked, uh, we asked Mike, you know, what what does owning a bike shop, uh, you know, how does that help the Wright brothers become the first in flight? 
what is it about bikes and flight um, that gave them an advantage or got them started on their journey to heavier than air human flight? I think they use like bike spokes and stuff like that kind of stuff around the bike shop to do those early tests. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to the bike shop. You know, what role does the brothers we talked about? They own a bike shop in Dayton. Um, what role does owning working in a bike shop play that you know leads them to pursue human flight? How does it uh, assist them? Well, by operating a successful business, and there was a successful business by any means, there was a nationwide bike craze going on. Uh, it allowed them to um, spend time uh, and develop the funds necessary to pursue their dreams. You got to remember, these guys did not have any benefactors. They did not have anybody supporting them. They did this all on their own. And it was the uh, bicycle shop uh, that played a big part of the necessary means of developing the ingenuity to make modifications on machinery. And, uh, and also, I think it helped them solve the problem of human flight. Um, the bike itself is most successfully operated when the rider is in control. When the rider is using, that's when the bike is most stable. When you're operating an airplane, uh, prior to that time, the theory was that due to all the wind currents, the human mind would not be able to master the means of successfully successfully flying through the air with all those wind currents. Keep it, keeping the plane stable. Exactly. The same way you have to kind of keep a bicycle stable. So to compensate for that, the theory was at the time that you had to develop machinery that could overpower and just could basically plow through the air kind of like a rocket, I suppose. But the Wright brothers knew, or at least they believed, that really the key was in giving the pilot more control. And they came to that conclusion by simply looking at how you operate a bike and, and how stability is a key in terms of operating heavy machinery. I work with my brother. Uh, we own a law firm on Grandview Avenue in Columbus, Hasty Legal. Uh, we've been running it for years. And we grew up together. We shared the same room growing up. Um, so I know what it's like to work with a brother. But n these brothers were beyond that. They almost shared a brain, Orville and Wilbur. Uh, Wilbur was the older brother. Wilbur was the genius. Um, he was the one who really pioneered their attempt to, to build an airplane. Orville, uh, very smart in his own right, uh, looked up to his brother. Wilbur was the leader. We asked Mike about just kind of that dynamic about Orville and Wilbur, who they were. So you can, you know, it's always tough for me when I read all these books to, to study for this episode. I'd always get them confused. Um, Orville was the younger, probably women consider him to be the better looking brother, while Wilbur was a little more introverted, but was just a, just a complete genius. And without Wilbur's brain and Wilbur's work ethic and Orville's work, uh, work ethic, uh, they never would have achieved everything that they did. We asked Mike about the brothers and their dynamic uh, and why it seemed to work as a team. So let's talk about the brothers. I mean, like you said earlier, they couldn't have done it without each other. Um, but talk about kind of their dynamic between Wilbur and, and Orville Wright. Well, first, I think it goes without saying Wilbur 
was the driving force. Wilbur was the genius. He was the entrepreneur. He um, thought on a level so much higher than all the others. And um, Wilbur was the leader for sure. Um, But the dynamic that they had was that they both had unbelievable amount of determination and hard work. Um, They challenged each other. They would argue with each other. They would argue to the point so much so that at one time you have them basically completely switching sides. Uh, and and yeah, that's, that's basically Orville would take Wilbur's side of the argument and, and Wilbur would take Orville's side of it by the end of the, their arguments. Exactly. But the, the, the two had just a tremendous working relationship. And early on when Wilbur took on the problem of flight, the matter of flight, he, he ref- was writing letters, he referred to um, his flying machine. Uh, but once Orville got involved in the process, from that point on, uh, they both referred to each other as, as equal partners. They both op- talked about our flying machine. And uh, so it was one that was uh, a relationship that was strong, good working, trusting, Um, and one that didn't involve a battle of egos. The brothers build gliders. They run experiments. They, They build, you know, rudimentary flying machines. People were gliding at this point in time, and gliding for somewhat long distances. But that was not human flight. This was simply, you know, just guys with basically a wing, hang gliders. Um, What was it about the Wrights that made them the first ever to achieve, you know, heavier-than-air human flight? Um, We talked to Mike about that. We talked about warped wing, uh, the warped wings that they had on their original Wright Flyer. And how those made such a huge difference. Well, think, speaking of the wings, we're sitting here drinking a, a Warped Wing Brewery. Uh, was this the 10-ton oatmeal stout uh, that you brought with you? So I appreciate that. Um, it's a Dayton brewery we talked about in the beginning. It's a pretty good beer, but wh- what is wing warping? So it's called Warped Wing Brewing. And wing warping really is the key to, to how the rights can, they use this wing warping to, to have such a giant breakthrough in you know, human technology. What is wing warping? What what? How did they how did they get the plane off the ground? Wing warping is uh, it's an early f- um, form of control of a fixed wing aircraft. The technique consists of a system of pulleys and cables that twist the edges of the wings in opposite directions to form to help the wing form almost uh, a helix shaped. In fact, I wish I could show the audience. I'm going to refer you to our can of warped wing brew here. Uh, you can see what a helix warped wing looks like. Yeah. And uh, by um, it was determined, actually, in the bicycle shop, one of the brothers was selling a, a bicycle tube to a kid, and it was a, came in a, in a rectangular-shaped box. And as the, one of the brothers were just twisting the box around, they saw that the box twisted in a helix shape. And they realized if they just were able to twist the way the wings operated, then they could easily um, con- control how 
uh, I guess the plane moves as far as lifting. So just having like a flat wing is not going to, you need that warp wing, that almost helix effect to kind of get the lift and, and for the control when you're in the air, I would think. Correct. Um, so a lot of people think, you know, around the turn of the century, Mike, that flight is impossible. Um, even Wilbur, I think, you know, says, I think in 1901, uh, two years before they actually achieve, achieve, you know, lighter than air powered flight, he says it'll be another 50 years until the technology exists. He almost quits. Um, I guess Orville talks him back into it. But talk about just, you know, the idea that people just, it was never going to happen. I mean, it's, I think it's one of the ideas, the reasons that people have so much trouble even believing them that they did achieve flight when they finally do. Well, we take it for granted today, uh, flying, of course. Uh, but it was a uh, complicated problem. You did have... Uh, attempts of flying machines, certainly, uh, but to, to develop a, a craft heavier than air, we're not talking about the dirigibles, we're talking about heavier than air, uh, there were multiple attempts, and some heavily funded by the government, and nowhere ever did they come close to achieving anything that the Wright brothers came up with. The Outer Banks uh, in North Carolina stretch from south of Norfolk all the way down uh, almost to the border with South Carolina. They're barrier islands. They're separated from the mainland um, by what's called the Albemarle Sound, Pimlico Sound uh, on the other side. And I spent my childhood, every year we went to the Outer Banks from the year, time I was six until I was in law school. My family, um, our family and friends, we'd go to places like Rodanthe and, and Avon, um, Cape Hatteras and Nags Head. It experienced a huge boom in the 90s and the 2000s. It's become a very popular tourist destination for, for uh, Eastern families to go for vacation. Dare County, North Carolina, which is the county that uh, all the Outer Banks are basically located in, has a population of only 35,000. Um, but that can balloon on a week in the summer uh, to upwards of 200,000 people in these little islands. They get battered by storms. The roads close. You can only get there by bridge. There's the right bridge. Um, you get there by ferries. Um, but they are isolated. And in the 1900s, they were desolate. I mean, there was nowhere near 35,000 people in Dare County. There were maybe 1,000 people in Dare County. Um, and they lived a hard life. They didn't have grocery stores. You go to the Food Lion down there, if you've ever been down to, to the Outer Banks. Um, there was no food lion, um, and, and people, people lived a very different life. They lived on the beach, um, which is nice, but again, it was just a different, a different place, and it's not like the Outer Banks that we know today. You see all those OBX stickers on people's cars. Keep your eyes out for them, because you'll see them by the dozens um, in and around Ohio. It's a great place to vacation. I can't wait to go back there, um, and when you're there, you got to go visit the Kitty Hawk Monument the Wright Brothers Monument, where they flew the first plane in December, uh, December 17th of 1903. We asked Mike about that first flight. How did it happen? Who was there? Um, we want to talk about the picture. Who took that picture? Um, let's talk about December 17th, 1903, the day that human beings first achieved flight. So they go to the Outer Banks. Talk about kind of that process. I used to always vacation every year in the Outer Banks with my family. Um, 
it's a lot more remote back then. How'd they find out about it? How, why were the Outer Banks a, a good place for them to, to try their flying experiments? Well, they wrote and asked for suggestions from, I think, the Smithsonian and various uh, flying organizations that are leagues out there that uh, were passionate about the, the project. And um, they, they had another number of suggestions, but they really liked uh, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, Outer Banks. They I, I think, one, the wind was the key, particularly uh, with uh, glider issues. They like the soft sand dunes. That would be a much easier place to crash if... if yeah, I mean, there's to. nothing around where they fly. I mean, right. if you've ever been there, it's just all sand. Uh, but what I think uh, cannot be said enough is the seclusion. I think they wanted seclusion. They did not want reporters there. They did not want anybody there to bother them while they were doing their experiments. And they uh, kind of wanted to keep a lot of what they did under wraps because they are constantly mindful of the fact that someone could steal their ideas. Yeah, I mean, someone with more funding steals all their hard work and suddenly the Wright brothers are not the first in flight. They don't make any money. They don't, you know, they don't do any of that stuff. I mean, the Outer Banks back then, Mike, Kitty Hawk, I mean, there was nobody there. I think McCullough talks about, you know, there's basically fishermen's uh, families, fishermen's families and, and, you know, some, some emergency light, you know, medical people down there. And that was about it. I mean, it was quite the undertaking to move all that machinery uh, over those places. And, Think about it, that stuff could be easily damaged, too. Oh, so yeah. they had to uh, be working on that constantly. And in some ways, that actually did benefit them by the fact that their machinery is so fragile. Uh, they they knew that machine inside and out so that they could easily repair it. I mean, there's no... It's not like today where you can kind of drive down to Norfolk and take the big bridge you know, to the Outer Banks. There's no roads there. It's, they're barrier islands. I mean, you had to take a boat from, I think, Elizabeth City, or you had to take it from Manio. Um, there's still a Manio uh, ferry that operates down there. But so they, you know, they get down to the Outer Banks. There's nobody there, and everyone's looking at them like they're crazy. These guys show up with a flying machine. They're wearing suits and ties on the beach every single day because they're always so well dressed. Um, talk about you know any just the people down there, how they helped, where they stayed. I mean, anything in the Outer Banks that you remember from their their early days down there. Well, you're right. There was no media present, and that's how the brothers wanted it. Um, and uh, it, it gave them the kind of seclusion they wanted to. Uh, it just, I think, um, from what I recall reading, they were just, the local population were just kind of surprised, <laughs> but at the same time, helpful uh, to these guys, these two guys from Dayton, Ohio, that arrive in suits and hats with their with their flying machine. So... Uh, you have uh, several people from the uh, life-saving stations nearby that are helping them actually conduct their experiments. Yeah, I think I think they won their respect. I mean, that's, that's a tough life out there. Um, I know we think of it as a great resort beach community now, but I think how hard they worked and how every day they showed up and they worked all hours, I think that really won the people over there on the Outer Banks. Um, so we talk about this first flight. And humans achieved flight on December 17th, 1903. Talk about that day. I mean, who saw it? Uh, there's a famous picture, but I mean, is there a news story? Is there anything about it? Just talk about that first flight on, on 12-17-03. Well, there is certainly a news story, for sure. Uh, whether or not the news got the story uh, is another question. But uh, the uh, picture was taken by John T. Daniels. Uh, he used uh, his brother's camera. Uh, he was a member of the Kill Devil Hills Life Saving Station. 
Orville is the one flying the plane in the picture. Um, Wilbur had won the coin toss and went first, uh, but crashed. So it then took the three days to repair the flyer. And so now it's Orville's turn. So um, uh, also in the picture, of course, is Wilbur right there. I think it's also important to note that in all the pictures of the Wrights flying their planes, you notice they aren't flying together. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. Um, what is that? What's what's that reason? I don't think they ever fly together, do they? No, I, I don't believe they do. And their the reason is if, if one crashes and dies, the other one carries on the work. Duh, right. Um, you mentioned John T. Daniels takes that picture. I was reading last week. It's actually the first picture he'd ever taken. He'd never actually snapped a photo. So it's a pretty impressive first, like, first selfie. I don't think you can do any better than that. Not bad for an amateur. No, not bad. Um... So how how long did they fly for? You said it was 120 feet or something. Uh, yeah, it was just they just flew 120 feet. It was more like um, the flights of Kitty Hawk. After that, that that first flight was 120 feet, but afterwards they were able to make uh, flights as long as 1,200 feet. These wow. are you got to remember these are more like control jumps yeah. than anything. But still, um, the fact that it's um, uh, done operated by man and it's heavier than air is is very significant uh they're the first to do it the first to do it yeah the age of flight is born orville and wilbur wright on december 17th 1903 in kitty hawk north carolina take flight the first humans to ever fly Wrights come back to Ohio in 1904 to no fanfare. The, the media doesn't pick up on the story, and even those that, that they do try to get to report on it simply just don't believe them. There's so few people at the, at the actual first flight um, that all they really have is this picture. And again, people do not believe that, that they actually did it. Um, they come back to Ohio, and they start, they start on a second a right flyer to in 1904, and they start flying at a place called Huffman Prairie, uh, Huffman's Prairie. A farmer gives them a bunch of land uh, for them to, to do some flying experiments on. They send a letter to Secretary of War Taft um, from Cincinnati, Ohio, later be the president. Um, and William Howard Taft, his office does not respond. They talk to them about, you know, they're trying to sell this, this glider, this, this plane the right two, and then eventually the right three. Um, we asked Mike about, about you know, what happens in 1905, because they make a huge leap in 1905 at Huffman Prairie with the Wright Flyer Three. Uh, the British sent over a delegation, uh, the French. People are starting to notice what's going on, um, even if it's not a story nationally. Huffman Prairie, what, what is Huffman Prairie now? Do you know? It is now uh, located inside Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Oh, wow. Uh, they've maintained it pretty much the same condition it was at the time in honor of this historic event. So it's still an airfield? Yep. Their idea has got to be not just to fly, but to sell this thing, right? Right. It was kind of a double-edged sword. The Wrights were certainly complicit in their lack of attention. They did not want attention. They wanted to protect their, their ideas um, from being stolen. 
Uh, that being said, they also wanted to be able to develop a practical flyer that they could sell. And um, for whatever reason, in the United States, there just was not the enthusiasm for aviation as there was in Europe. And you're right. They were contacted uh, by the British. Uh, specifically, France, though, had um, quite a bit uh, of enthusiasm for aviation, even more so than the rest of Europe. Um Let's go to 1905, because this is when we really start to see powered flight, the kind of flight that we're used to. Um, they build another plane. that You should try try this beer. It's a good beer. You should have it's nice and cool. You know, they build the, the right, the Flyer 3, as it's called. Um, and they really, truly kind of learned to fly in 1905. You know, people tend to think, okay, they flew a little bit in Kitty Hawk. That's, that's the end of the story. That, that's, not, that's nowhere near the end of the story. For all intents and purposes, this was the first practical airplane that the Wrights felt they could offer to sell. Uh, they flew it 24.5 miles in 38 minutes and 3 seconds. Yeah, that's right. 24 and a half miles. So that's a big jump. That is a big jump. Um, and they're able to land it. Nobody's getting hurt. And they actually do sell the Flyer 3, right? They do sell it. Uh, they eventually establish contracts with both... French and the U.S. government. U.S. government gets involved when they see the other governments getting involved. <laughs> so, um, but they, the contracts all depended on successful public flight demonstrations. So the rights couldn't keep it secret anymore. They had to just bite the bullet and show the world what they can do. The Wright Flyer 3 is a good enough airplane that they actually are able to get those government contracts with the French and with the American Army. But those first contracts require a flight demonstration. Um, and so Wilbur is going to make his way to France. And this is one of the most incredible parts of this story. Wilbur goes to France, and, and there's a lot of anticipation. There's more excitement about aviation in Europe than there is in the United States. I can't explain why that is, um, but it's just a fact. Wilbur Wright becomes probably the most influential and popular American in the, in the country of France since Ben Franklin in the 18th century. They love him. And they love him not just because of his incredible achievements and demonstrations of flight over the skies in Le Mans, but also just his demeanor. We asked Mike about this trip to Europe and how this does officially establish the rights as the pioneers of flight and catapults them to gigantic stardom. Wilbur goes to Europe in 1907. He goes to France. He goes to Le Mans to, to kind of show, not just to you know, complete the contract, but also to show Europeans flight. Um, discuss kind of what he does there. I mean, the, it's, it's a whole nother level of flight, and, and the French are just, they go absolutely nuts for it. Talk about Wilbur in Europe. Wilbur astounds everyone. Not just in his abilities, but just in the way he conducts himself. Um, some would say he's almost the Ben Franklin of his day. He uh, doesn't come across as arrogant, uh, he, but he does come across as very learned. He was going to the Louvre all the time to, to look at the paintings and to ask questions. He was very fascinated with French architecture, so he'd always be very engaging and try to learn as much as he could about French architecture. Without ever learning the language. Exactly, without ever learning the language. So... Uh, right off the bat, uh, Wilbur makes quite the impression. And then, of course, uh, he conducts his flying tests. And he does it 
at a local horse racetrack near Paris, and everybody's just astounded. The French public were thrilled. Uh, it was at that point that the Wright brothers become instantly world famous. They all thought he was bluffing. Now you have thousands and thousands of people coming just to watch him fly. Um, they they admired him. They admired this this uh, person that came from some humble beginnings and were able to just astound the world. I mean, Ben Franklin was there in you know seventeen seventy seventeen eighty. So there was not a more popular American there until gosh, I don't even know, but not for one hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty years. Uh, the European press also, they, they go crazy. And this, you know, the British papers and the French papers and, you know, the, the papers in Italy and Germany, when they start reporting on it, that's when the story just blows up back here in the States. The press here realized, yep, the, we got it wrong. In fact, the editor of the Dayton Daily News, uh, the 1920 presidential candidate for the Democratic Party, James, James, James Cox. Yep, James Cox. Uh, he was the editor at the time, and he said, "Quite frankly, nobody just we just nobody believed them, <laughs> and uh, we got it wrong. We did. Well, now um, the world has been astounded, and everybody was talking about the Wright brothers. It's so funny that you know the the paper in Paris is actually one who breaks the story, even though they've been flying in Dayton for years. Yeah, they've been doing their tests all the time. Yeah." Around the same time that, that Wilbur is in, in France in the summer and spring of 1908, wowing the crowds, Orville begins taking off and doing flights in America. The first time this country has seen the type of flight that, that we know today. Orville is um, incredibly successful. Let's just put it that way. He's flying longer, further um, than Wilbur is in Europe. And people are coming, they're coming out of work early, whether, you know, you work on Capitol Hill, lawmakers, people, uh, cabinet position people, government workers are leaving work and going to watch these flights, and they are astounded. It's on the front page of every single paper. Rights reach new heights, headlines would read. Orville makes a one-hour flight on September 3rd, 1908. Um, he steals... Wilbur's Thunder, almost, you know. But on both sides of the Atlantic, the rights are the main story. And one day it's a story about how Wilbur took someone else, you know, second person up in the air with him and flew for 45 minutes and, and you know, flew in front of the, the king of, of Italy. And the next day, it's, it's Wilbur, or it's Orville in, in D.C. setting some kind of new aviation record. It was a time of first. It was a time of incredible fame for the rights. Uh, you know, a lot of these army people wanted to see if you could get two people in the air. And that was something that, you know, Wilbur and Orville, they start taking other people up in the air with them. Yep. Um, I mean, Catherine, their sister, actually flew three different times exactly. when she was in Europe. Um, and she actually had flown more than any woman in the world at that point in time. The Wrights were still very skeptical of people trying to steal their idea. Even though they had these contracts, they were starting to make serious money. They still were concerned about people coming in 
and taking what they had worked for, taking their ideas and taking their future earnings away. They were very suspicious uh, of the Army, and the U.S. Army wanted to send someone up, a man named Thomas Selfridge, Captain Thomas Selfridge. Orville was unwilling to fly with him. He thought he was a spy for different aviation organizations. But they decided to take him up, and they took him up for a flight in Washington, D.C. on September 17, 1908. Orville and, and Captain Selfridge go up, and at some point in the flight, 100 feet in the air, a rudder snaps off. The, the plane takes a complete nosedive into the ground. Nose first smashes into the earth in front of hundreds of onlookers. Men in horseback, army officers, medical people race out to the scene. Smoldering wreckage, our first real plane crash disaster. And the men are not moving. Thomas Selfridge is killed. He's dead when they get there. They take him to the hospital, but he's gone. Orville's rushed to the hospital with catastrophic injuries, but he survives. He survives the first plane crash in American and aviation history. Orville suffers crippling injuries. We asked Mike Albritton about the crash. Um, and about its effect on the Wright brothers and what it does to Orville. What happened was they were in flight about, I think, 100 feet up. But there was the altitude was 100 feet. And a propeller split and shattered. And so at that point, the, uh, the flyer was out of control. And uh, we don't, I believe Selfridge's last words were something along the lines of, oh my, or oh no. Yeah, oh my God. Or something. And um, uh, Selfridge was killed. Uh, the crash and Orville was seriously wounded, seriously wounded, multiple fractures, uh, broken ribs. This was the first recorded death. This was the first casualty of the aviation. Yeah, I mean, other than you know people in a glider or something right. like that, but just this right. is the first time we've had a full blown plane crash that's claimed someone's life. Exactly. Thomas Selfridge, you said. Army Thomas officer. Selfridge. Um, you know, they were talking, this is the final days of, of TR, of Roosevelt. There's talk in the press that Roosevelt was going to go up with him. There was talk, and... Uh, that probably yeah. ended after this Yeah, crash. it probably did. So, you know, what's Wilbur's reaction, the family reaction? What what are the brothers, you know, I know Catherine goes to take care of him, but Wilbur's in, still in Europe. He's still doing his flight demonstrations in France. Just talk about his reaction to the crash. Well, certainly Wilbur was uh, obviously concerned about his brother, um, it did take Orville a long time to heal. Orville, though, never had any desire to quit, and neither did Wilbur. Wilbur became uh, determined to make even greater flyer, flying demonstrations in Europe to compensate for that crash in the United States. Yeah, I think uh, I think they. I remember reading something. They asked Orville, you know, have you lost your nerve? And he was just worried about 
you know, he wasn't worried if he could fly again or if he would fly again as if he could fly again. Right. His only concern was, will I get healthy enough to actually get back in the air? It's not right. that he was scared about it. And Orville had a, uh, he had a tough time getting it. It was, it was a very um, painful injuries. It was. His sister had to nurse him back to health. It took him a while. The rites continue to wow Europe. Orville, still in recovery, comes over with his sister, Catherine, um, who becomes a huge star as well. And they spend months in Europe together, in Italy, uh, Germany, other places. We talked to Mike about that, that trip. The last time that they were all together, all happy, um, Europe was the same way. Before the war, it was a pretty magical place. But they have this incredible trip. They dine with kings and queens. They're fed it all over the place. Their Wright brothers are given awards by the French government. Um, and like I said, they just have one of the greatest trips any Americans have ever had to Europe. Talk about just that summer in 1908. Just, you know, Catherine, Orville, and Wilbur having what I call the perfect European vacation. Well, they were the toast of Europe, the three of them. Catherine spoke fluent French, and people were just delighted by all of them. Yeah, she was really popular. Catherine was probably the most popular, right? And she was highly intelligent, too. She was a school teacher, uh, self-taught, and highly intelligent, but just, just spoke to the crowds, and everybody loved them. Um, of course, we also knew Wilbur was highly intelligent, was popular. Um, one of the things that I saw in, in preparing for this podcast was a really interesting picture of Kaiser Wilhelm II on on a horse looking at the right flyer. I've never seen that picture. That's yeah, the right flyer's in the air, and it's just really incredible to think about what was to come yeah. uh, because of all that. Seeing that picture of the Kaiser looking at the airplane, it just uh, there was just a lot of foreshadowing uh, for me that I've just found very compelling. You got to send me that picture for the website. That's it. You know what's going on in his mind is how can we use these to, to take over Europe? Or <laughs> they meet with the King of England. I think it's King Edward back then. Yep. Uh, Victoria's son. Um, the King of Spain, the King of Italy. None of them go up there with them, but a lot of European dignitaries did. And, you know, they have this great moment, you know, where Wilbur has, gives that speech in Paris. You know, they give him a, a big award in Paris to him and Orville. Um... And just, I mean, he became, like you said, just the most popular American we've ever had. He becomes an honorary Frenchman. Um, and I don't think he ever came back to Europe. Did he ever make it back? I don't believe so. I don't no. think so. But you're right. They loved him. And there's just so many firsts uh, by just virtue of first flight. You have, uh, you mentioned them visiting Italy. Well, they you have uh, passengers going up now. So the first um, video camera was taken up. Uh, first recorded images were taking up. Um, into the airplane, so you have pictures for the first time being taken from an airplane in um, in Italy. I thought it was odd, you know. They do they start taking passengers when they're in Italy, um, but they wouldn't take any money. I, I there was a, I remember there's a story of a guy who shows up with all this money. He's like, I'm going up today, and you know, just give the rights this money, and they, and they actually refuse him. It was just a like I don't even know if it was first come first serve. They basically just pick people at random to take them. On flights, they didn't want to just take the rich and the powerful. Right. That's a pretty Wright Brothers thing to do, if you ask me. <laughs> they come home in 1909 to Dayton, Ohio. And the city plans its largest celebration in the history of its over 100 years of existence. They plan a giant two-day parade. The parade has floats and everything's being built over at the National Cash Registry, uh, parking lots and at the factory. The celebration's enormous. They get into town. The parade, like I said, is two days long. 
The parade is actually a chronological tale uh, of American history, from the Indians to Columbus to the first, you know, the the first pilgrims to the Revolution, all Civil War, everything, um, ending with the Wright brothers' flight. I think it went Spanish War, McKinley assassination, uh, and then the Wright brothers. One of the funny things I think about that that homecoming is, you know, they're being followed around by the New York media who's, who's doing a story on the celebration. And Orville and Wilbur, all the time, the, the little time they have in between events and, and the parade and, and the reviewing stand and all that, they are back at the bike shop doing little experiments, working on little inventions. Every moment of free time they have. in New York City. His plan is to fly up the Hudson River from Governor's Island all the way up the Hudson to the Upper West Side of Manhattan to fly around the Statue of Liberty. But he's not alone. There's other newly famous aviators in in the world. Um, And the most famous American that's not a Wright brother is Glenn Curtis. And he's in New York at the same time to also show the Big Apple its first taste of flight. Curtis had just set the world speed record in France a month before when he flew 44 miles per hour. Um, it was a record he held for one day, but it was enough to make him a celebrity. Uh, just, just for a frame of reference, the fastest recorded speed now by an airplane is 2,200 miles an hour. Um, and the commercial planes that we fly around the country in, uh, they cruise at about 550 miles an hour. So these were obviously much slower uh, much slower flights, and, and they flew normally in that 35, 40-mile-an-hour range. But Curtis decides that the winds are too strong. They're whipping off the skyscrapers in New York City. Um, you know, these guys only fly at a couple hundred feet, and, and the wind coming off of those buildings, it's unlike anything they've flown before. Um, and Curtis decides not to fly. Uh, it's also a flight over water. You know, this intense, unpredictable winds... Um, you had the element of, of water below, not land. No one had ever, had ever landed in water before. So Orville straps a canoe to the bottom of his plane. And, and we'll show you a picture. We'll, we'll post a, a painting, and there's a picture of him flying around the Statue of Liberty. Um, but there's a canoe strapped to the bottom. I love this, just this dichotomy of the, one of the oldest forms of transportation uh, meeting the newest form of transportation. The thought is that the canoe if they crash, would help everything stay afloat um, and Orville could get out and, and, you know, and get off on the canoe and it wouldn't just sink right away and take him down with it. But still an incredibly dangerous flight. And on October 4th, Orville takes off. He circles the Statue of Liberty. Um, he flies up the west shore of Manhattan, past Grant's tomb, and he flies all the way, uh, they say, to West 121st Street. And people are on top of buildings. People are looking out of their homes and skyscrapers downtown. 
and then you know across the across the river in New Jersey. Um, and he turns around, he flies over the Lu- Lusitania, the famous luxury liner that would be sunk in 1915 by the Germans. Um, its decks are filled with onlookers. It's said that a million people witnessed this event. New York City is mesmerized. Their first true flight that they've ever seen. Wilbur Wright flies for 33 minutes, 21 miles of just awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping um, and ultimately very dangerous moments in the air. Uh, it would also be Wilbur's last flight in front of a public audience. Wilbur Wright would die in 1912, just a few short years after that famous New York flight. He dies of typhoid fever in Dayton. But Orville lives, and Orville lives on for many years. He actually lives until 1948, January 30th, 1948. He, he passes away, and he's buried in, in, in Dayton um, with his brother and mother and father, sister Catherine. But he lives to see not only Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, who, who actually comes to Dayton when he lands um, to pay homage to, to Orville Wright, He also lives to see civil aviation, but he also, unfortunately, lives to see the destruction wrought by World War II. He sees the atom bomb leave the bay of of the the plane, the Enola Gay. He sees the destruction and death caused by his invention. But he had an interesting take on it, and I always liked his, his analogy. He likens his invention and the death and destructions it's caused he likens it to the man who invented fire. And sure, he said, or Orville says, you know, the man who invented fire obviously feels bad about all the people who've been killed and whose lives have been destroyed by fire. But also there's, there's a lot of good that's come out of fire. And Orville, like the man who created fire, the caveman, um, he knows that his invention, although it has caused serious problems and death and its misuse by armies and air forces around the world. It's also caused incredible breakthroughs in human technology. And his hope is that it would push us closer to world peace. It's no denying that the Wright brothers and their creation of a powered, heavier-than-air flying machine with with a pilot on board, it changed the world. It brought the dawn of the age of flight, and it altered the course of human history. I implore all of our listeners, if you're in Washington, D.C., or make the trek yourself, go to the Air and Space Museum. They have a giant Wright exhibit on the second floor. And go see the Wright Flyer. It's, it's, in, it's just so old school. It's amazing. Um, and go see the machine that helped Ohio conquer flight. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading 
Our book recommendation for episode eight is David McCullough's The Wright Brothers, released in 2015. Um, McCullough, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, just an incredible talent uh, as he reaches the end of his career. Um, the book is just incredible, and we never would have done this episode. I never would have gotten into The Wright Brothers and learning about them if it weren't for this incredible book. He is one of America's finest historians and, uh, and one of its best writers. So you got to go check out Dave McCullough's The Wright Brothers. Um, like I said, it's just a, just a great read, um, as all his books always are. So that'll do it for today. We want to remind you again about the Broke Man's Beer Mile on Memorial Day, Monday, May 29th. You can sign up at brokemans.com. Um, and, of course, you follow us on our Facebook page, like our page. We're up over six, uh, 600 or so likes. Um, check out the website. You can see we put different photos and articles if you want to learn more about the subjects um, in between episodes. Our next episode, episode nine, will be Ohio versus Jim Crow. And we'll look at William McCulloch, um, the congressman who pioneers the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that struggle for civil rights and how a, an unknown Ohioan helped make that act happen um, in 1964 in the Voting Rights Act that he also helped push through in 1965. We'll learn all about the civil rights movement next episode. Follow us again on um, Instagram, Ohio v. The World Podcast, and please rate and review the show. That helps us keep moving up in the rankings. Um, give us five stars. Uh, and tell us what you like about, about the show. And you can always email us, ohiovtheworld uh, at gmail.com. We'll get back to you. If you have ideas for shows, if you think someone would be a great guest, um, anything like that, you know, your thoughts, just get back with us. We're very, uh, we're very open to talking with our listeners. We're so happy to have so many people listening to the show. So we will stay uh, in tune with what you guys want to hear. That'll do it. Uh, again, North Carolina, you are not, the first in flight, Ohio, claims all rights to, to the pioneering of aviation. Um, and check out that book. Check out McCullough's book. It's really good. Again, the Wright Brothers. I actually listen to it on Audible because then he will narrate it to you. Um, and he's the narrator of a lot of Ken Burns documentaries, um, like the Civil War. Um, but ha it's nice to have Dave McCullough read you his own book. So check that out on audible.com. Thanks again for listening. Uh, you can download it on soundcloud.com backslash Ohio v. The World. Obviously, iTunes is a great place to find it. But we're also on Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, um, or you can just check it out on the website, Ohio, uh, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week um, with Ohio versus Jim Crow. Thanks for listening to Episode 8, When Ohio Conquered Flight.
We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the Presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.